0: two one children's book author says that every scripture every page of scripture whispers his name and it's important for us to see the centrality of Christ and the centrality of the gospel from Genesis to Revelation it's interesting to think that the bible itself is not in any way an exhaustive view of god nor is it an exhaustive view of everything that we wanted to know the point of the bible is to bring reconciliation. The point of the Bible is to bring man and woman into a relationship with Christ, and He is the central figure. Every page of Scripture, in one way or another, does whisper His name. The story we'll be looking at today, not only do people whisper His name, but many people in Jerusalem actually shout His name, and they shout different things about Him on this day, and then people in the days following this particular day in history in Jerusalem, will continue to shout His name. But they will be shouting things different than what they were shouting in our passage today. It's important for us to really sit in the reality of what Palm Sunday is and to sit in the reality of Holy Week. If you will, turn to the front of your bulletin. There's a quote by an Episcopal priest, Fleming Rutledge, who has become one of my favorites to read Recently, you heard me mention her often throughout Advent, and she says this just as we contemplate and think about Holy Week, and then particularly today, Palm Sunday. Were it not for the ancient liturgical wisdom given to the church, it would be perfectly possible to go to Sunday services two weekends in a row, Palm Sunday and Easter Day, without ever having to face the fact that Jesus of Nazareth was abandoned, condemned, and put to death as a common criminal on the Friday in between. And I read this because I really want us to sit in this this morning. And as we look this morning at what God wants us to see from Matthew 21 about Jesus himself, I really want us to see that not all during this narrative is joyous. Not all of these things delight the heart and entice the mind towards peace. Some of these things are very troubling and upsetting. But it's important for us to see these realities about Christ if we really want to capture what God would have us to know about His Son, Jesus Christ, as He moves into, this week, His passion. The great Christian poet, or the great poet who is a Christian, I should say, John Donne said this, All his life was a continual passion, speaking of Jesus. All his life was a continual passion. Well, this passion in earnest begins today in our text from Matthew 21. So stand with me, if you will, as we hear the gospel of the Lord this morning. From Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. Now when they drove near to the Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold... Pray with me, Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your gospel and your gospel would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Who is Dwayne Wade? Do you know who Dwayne Wade is? Dwayne Wade was, can only say that this week. Uh, Or now we can say it this week. Dwayne Wade was an NBA superstar for 16 years. He grew up in Chicago, played a fantastic college basketball career at Marquette, and then spent most of his NBA career, which is a Hall of Fame all-star career with the Miami Heat. Dwayne Wade retired from the NBA this week. One of the interesting things about Dwayne Wade this season, for one, he was contemplating whether he was going to play this season at all and retire last season, and apparently between a group text thread that included Dwayne Wade and another NBA superstar, Chris Paul, they decided that it would be really cool for Wade throughout this season to go through this ritual of exchanging jerseys with other veterans, newcomers, other NBA players in which he would play against throughout the season. And so they would have these ceremonial actions in many of his games that became really a social media sensation. Very, very cool to watch Dwayne Wade exchange jerseys with the likes of LeBron, etc. And they would, you know, they would take a Dwayne Wade jersey and Dwayne Wade would take their jersey and then they would post these pictures. And Dwayne Wade said it was really cool. He said a fear of his was that it would come across really potentially narcissistic. He really didn't want it to come across narcissistic. He just really wanted to celebrate and be thankful for his career in the NBA. And so this is a pretty fantastic thing that has been happening all throughout the season. However, something else pretty fantastic with regard to Dwayne Wade happened this past week as a commercial was released online and has now gone hyper viral. And so in this commercial, Dwayne Wade is walked out to midcourt And the commercial begins by him saying, I have no idea who's going to show up. He had been told that there were some more exchanges, Jersey type exchanges that needed to take place, but he was nervous and he didn't know. And he said, I really don't know who's going to show up. And of course, they're filming this and it's done very well just from a filming standpoint. And as he's saying, I have no idea who's going to show up. They show up with five different people individually. One of the people that showed up at half court to exchange something with Dwayne Wade was the sister of one of the Parkland shooting victims. Her little brother had died in the shooting at Parkland High School, which is just outside of Miami. And Dwayne Wade, on his own initiative after that, had written her brother's name and number on his shoe to honor him after the shooting. And so she was there to give Dwayne Wade her brother's jersey. There was another girl that was there to give Dwayne Wade her graduation gown because Dwayne Wade had paid for her entire college tuition. There was another woman there who brought a cloak, an item of clothing to, to Dwayne Wade because he had volunteered to send her and her family on a massive shopping spree after their house had burned down there was another young man there who grew up in poverty in Miami to express his thankfulness to Dwayne Wade for the ways that he had helped him and inspired him and then last but surely not least Dwayne Wade's mom comes to center court and she says in a tearful expression her gratefulness for how Dwayne her son always Stuck with her. How he stuck with her through her cocaine addiction. How he stuck with her through being imprisoned. And how he stuck with her when she became a Christian in prison. And upon her release bought her a church. And she gives him, not a jersey, but she gives him a purple robe that she preached in. And she says something to the effect of, I know you're a great basketball player. But I'm so much more proud of who you are as a man. And what you've done off the basketball court far more than what you have done on the basketball court. You see, through that expression and through that incredibly powerful commercial, I dare you to watch it without tears, by the way what we see is who Dwayne Wade really is. It is revealed that he's not only an NBA superstar and a fantastic basketball player, but he is a man of integrity and kindness and humility and goodness. Our passage this morning gives us a revelation as well. It gives us a revelation of who Jesus really is. It's impossible in this day and time to not have some conception, and in fact, many, most likely, misconceptions about who Jesus really is. The text tells us towards the bottom of the narrative, it asks the question, Who is this? And that's really what I want us to consider this morning. I want us to consider who is Jesus really. And I want us to see what Matthew 21 and somewhat of an overarching scope of Scripture reveals about who Jesus is. But before we do that, I want you to think in your own mind for a moment about who you think Jesus is. This is an important question. And it's a question that everyone, seemingly, at minimum in the English-speaking world, but surely beyond that, has some answer to the question, who is Jesus? One person's answer to the question that I like a lot is Bono. He's the lead singer of U2, and there was a biography written about Bono a few years ago entitled, Bono in Conversation. And the author asked the lead singer of U2 this about Jesus he says, Christ has his rank among the great thinkers of the world. But the Son of God? Isn't that a little bit far-fetched? And then Bono responds, No, it's not far-fetched to me. Look at the secular response to the Christ story. It always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy. Had a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets. Be they Elijah Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius. But actually, Christ does not allow you that. He starts to talk like C.S. Lewis right here, by the way. He does not let you off the hook. Christ says, no, I am not saying that I am a teacher. Don't call me teacher. I am not saying I'm a prophet. I am saying I am the Messiah. I am saying I am God incarnate. And people say, no, no, please, just be a prophet. A prophet we can take. You're a bit eccentric. We've had John the Baptist eating locust and wild honey. We can handle that. But don't mention the M word. Because you know we're going to have to crucify you. And he goes, no, no. I know you're expecting me to come back with an army and set you free from these creeps. But actually, I am the Messiah. At this point, everyone stares at their shoes and says, oh my God. He's going to keep saying this. So what you're left with is this. Either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. I mean, we're talking a nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. This man was like some of the people we've been talking about earlier. This man was strapping himself to a bomb. And on that bomb, it had this inscription, King of the Jews. And they were putting him on the cross. And he was going, okay, martyrdom. Here we go. Bring on the pain. I can take it. I'm not joking here. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase. Bonu says, for me, that seems far-fetched. Who is Jesus. Jesus even asked this question himself in Matthew 16 to the disciples, and Peter characteristically speaks up. And Peter says, Well, you know, some say you're John the Baptist, and some say you're Elijah, and some say that you're one of the prophets. And then Jesus turned to Peter and he said, But what about you? Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's Peter saying, You are the Messiah. Well, Matthew chapter 1 or chapter 21 is Jesus actually announcing and proclaiming publicly and explicitly this one overarching idea I am the Messiah, is what Jesus finally and fully says at this point in his life in Matthew 21. And that's really what I want us to consider. I want us to consider that Jesus self proclaimed and acknowledged. Publicly, through this triumphal entry, through this Palm Sunday, through this liturgy of the passion, that he is the Messiah. Messiah means anointed one, deliverer, king. But he is a Messiah unlike any other. Jesus is a Messiah unlike any other. No one holds greater authority than Jesus, yet no one encompasses lowliness like Jesus. No one captures these historic two natures theologically that we must consider humanity and divinity. We must really hold these things together, yet there is a tension about them. And if we lean towards one or the other, we over-spiritualize or we over-secularize. And what we've got here is this Messiah who is authoritative and lowly. We've got a Messiah who is glorious yet who is humble. I want us to consider in a little more detail how we see that Jesus acknowledges the fact that he is the Messiah here in this passage explicitly within this passage but then also we're going to look a little overarchingly throughout the narrative of scripture to see that Jesus acknowledges himself to be the Messiah because he's the promised one because he's the suffering servant. And because he's the true king. Jesus overarchingly acknowledges himself to be the Messiah. That's who Jesus is. He's the anointed one. He's the deliverer. He's the rescuer. And we see this throughout the scriptures, throughout the narrative of redemptive history, as we see him revealed as the promised one, as we see him revealed as the suffering servant, as we see him revealed as the true king. In the beginning, as in Genesis We already see that God is promising a deliverer because God has created all things, and that's where the narrative of redemptive history begins. It begins in creation, and God God created all things to be good, and God gave Adam and Eve great freedom. And God gave Adam and Eve one prohibition, and Adam and Eve, just like me and you, decide to lean towards that one prohibition. And as a result of that prohibition, moving against God with great mystery and absurdity, the fall enters the world, and God says as a result of this, everything now is no longer good. In fact, everything now, to one degree or another, is cursed. But because everything is cursed, I need to do something about it. I need to send someone to fix this. And so God, in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, in a dialogue with the serpent, offers what theologians call the proto-euangelion, the first proclamation of the gospel. When he's speaking to the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and he says, hey, serpent, you... This is the way this is going to go down. There's going to be an epic battle. Keeping in mind, this is in Genesis. There's going to be an epic battle. And in that epic battle, there's going to be one whose heel you will strike. And it's an explicit reference to Christ being nailed to the cross. There's one whose heel you will strike, but that one whose heel you will strike, there's another thing that's going to happen. He's going to do something. He's going to crush your head. And it's the good news. That doesn't sound like good advice, does it? Because the gospel's not good advice, but it's good news. And we see the good news proclaimed first, and early and often in the story of redemptive history as God proclaims a promised one who will come and who will crush the serpent's head. That's part of what it means to be the Messiah. And of course, all the other prophets, some more explicitly and even poetically than others, like Isaiah, who proclaims in a fantastic way in chapter 7 that there will be a virgin And she will give birth to a child. And you shall call him Emmanuel. And then we get to sing songs like, Come thou long expected Jesus. Unfortunately, only once a year. We should probably change that. Because Christmas hymns carry some of the deepest Christological significance of any poetry we could read. And we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. That's what it means to be the Messiah. It means to be the promised one the deliverer that God sends for His people. But it also means to be one who is a suffering servant. So if God promises to reverse the curse, He's got to have a plan on how He's going to reverse the curse that affected all of creation. And God's plan to reverse the curse is this plan of redemption that Paul outlines in Genesis or Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. And he says this, Christ redeemed us From the curse. How? By becoming a curse. And then he goes on to say, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You see, not only is this Messiah the promised one, this Messiah is also the one who suffers. He suffers not because he lived a life that would be cursed, but he suffers on behalf of us. His people. And he suffers on behalf of the world because it is cursed. And the way in which he seeks to reverse the curse is that he becomes the curse. That's who Christ is. He's the suffering servant. He was born to die. He was, as the historic hymn based upon Isaiah 53, Jesus was stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Isaiah in chapter 53 says this, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. And and let me just interject. The reason it's so important for us to understand this is we're moving towards Easter next week, and we're going to celebrate the life and the death, and most importantly, the resurrection of Jesus. But we must remember how we got here in the first place, We must look clearly and specifically and repeatedly at who Jesus really is. Who the scriptures have revealed Him to be. Surely He has borne our grief, Isaiah says, and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds... We are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Because he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. And makes intercession for the transgressors. What does it mean to be a suffering servant? It means to be numbered with a group of people. That you naturally don't identify with. Jesus willingly numbered himself with those who are broken and sinful and who are not the way they're supposed to be. Do you know anyone like that? We better know people like that. If not, look in the mirror. Because here's the truth of the gospel. We know that Christ numbered himself with the transgressors. We know that Christ numbered himself with those who are not the way they're supposed to be. We know know that Christ numbered himself with people that are not okay, people that are broken. And if you don't see yourself as one who is not okay, if you don't see yourself as one who is broken, if you don't see yourself as one who is sinful, if you don't see yourself as one who is a transgressor then the bad news is Christ does not number himself with you. Because you see, Christ says explicitly in the Gospels, I did not come for the righteous. I did not come for people that are okay. I didn't come for people that are all set. I came for sinners. I did not come to heal those who are well. I came for the sick. Do you see yourself as one who is sick? in need of healing, one who is broken, one who is a transgressor. Well, the good news is if the answer is yes, then Christ, because he's the suffering servant, Messiah, numbers himself with you. Another aspect of Christ being a suffering servant is Christ is one, he's a Messiah. And this is just yet another tenuous counterintuitive thing about what kind of anointed king Christ is. He is a Messiah who weeps. We see evidence actually of God's weeping, if you will, even in the Old Testament. And then we see it very explicitly in the New Testament. Twice, in fact, in the New Testament, those who witnessed Jesus' life, His biographers, if you will, in the Gospel accounts. One in John chapter 11, upon the death of His friend, we read that Jesus, the shortest verse in the Bible, but one of the most profound, Jesus, the Messiah the promised one, the king, the anointed one, weeps and expresses deep sadness and also deep anger at sin and brokenness expressed in death. And then we see Jesus weeping again, actually in this narrative. Matthew doesn't mention it, but Luke does. After Jesus enters this quote-unquote triumphant parade, Jesus looks upon Jerusalem, Luke tells us in verses 41 through 44. And what does he do when he looks upon Jerusalem? He weeps. Why does he weep? Because they don't get it. He weeps because those who are saying Hosanna today will be saying crucify him in just a couple days. He weeps because they think that he is going to come establish this political reign And and he's going to elevate them. And so they're in arguments, right? You read this. They're in arguments of who's going to sit. Like on his cabinet. When Jesus' political party overtakes the world. And all the right news stations report on it. And Jesus hears them arguing over these things. And he doesn't laugh. He cries. Because he's a suffering servant. That's part of what it means to be a Messiah. The last thing I want us to consider before we move on to the fact that He's the true King is that Jesus, as the suffering servant, is one who is faithful. And this is what I think is such good news about the gospel because many of us have grown up in the church or in traditions that essentially communicated explicitly or implicitly, your relationship with God is primarily based upon your faithfulness. Well, I mean, just how's that going? What's that like? No big deal, you know, NBD, eternity, heaven, hell, forever, significance in life now, life eternally, just hangs in the balance on one small thing your faithfulness. How does that feel? burdensome, crushing, worth weeping over. But I can stand here today and tell you that's not the gospel. The gospel is not good advice to be faithful. The gospel is good news. You see, Christianity is not primarily about what you must do. Christianity is primarily about what Christ has done. And according to Matthew 21, what has Christ done? He showed up. He showed up because he was born to die. He showed up because it was his time. And he had this time on his mind ever since he was born. He had this time on his mind in John chapter 2 when he's at a wedding feast. And his mom comes up to him and says, what are you doing? This is the time. And Jesus looks at her and he says, woman, this is not my time. But in Matthew 21, what he says is, this is my time. This is my hour. This will be my finest hour. This will be the most dreadful hour. This will be where I'm betrayed and abandoned. This will be where people speak hypocrisy. One side of their mouth is Hosanna. The other side of their mouth is crucify him. But through all this, this suffering servant is a Messiah who is faithful. Faithful. Remember what I said in the beginning from the poet John Donne? All his life was a continual passion. That's good news. Good advice is all of your life should be continual passion for Jesus. Is that statement wrong? No, it's just a crushing burden if that's all we got. But the good news of the gospel is all of Christ's life was a continual passion. And here's the beauty. His passion for us infuses our passion for Him. It empowers us, yes, to live lives of faithfulness. It empowers us to live lives of passion. It actually empowers us to follow His lead and example in being a suffering servant. It gives us freedom to ask the hard question of application. Do I serve others? Do I suffer for others? Do I suffer in order to be faithful? Jesus is an example, no doubt, and an example that would be the most worthy to follow. And it would be good for us to ask the question of application, how can I be a suffering servant to others around me, to this community, to the world? How can I serve the poor and the oppressed? How can I suffer for my family? How can I be the faithful one and show up But if we only preach Christ as example, which many are accustomed to doing, and I can tell you as a preacher, it's just so easy to preach Christ as an example. And it's so easy to make you feel guilty. Why? Because it's low-hanging fruit. Same for me. Why? Because we are. But gosh, we have to preach Christ as Savior. If Christ is only example, it's a crushing burden. And that's not what we see in Matthew 21. We see Christ as Savior. And a Messiah that we want to follow, that we want to be passionate about, that we want to be faithful with, with ultimately because of his passion and his faithfulness for us. So this Messiah is the promised one. He's the suffering servant. And then lastly, he's the true king. He's the true king, but a king that is different than what we would expect. One commentator, one of my favorite commentators, Frederick uh, Bruner, uh, calls him in his section, I don't know if this is a riff on the 80s video game or not, but he calls him the Donkey King. It's a great video game, by the way, back when video games were different than they are now. But what we see from this passage is that he's the modest Messiah. And this modesty is manifested in a somewhat humorous way as he comes riding a donkey. At this point, by the way, you would have to think that those who were looking for political power and gain, looking to sit at his right hand, looking for him to drop the hammer on all the bad people. When he came on the donkey, you'd think that they had to start scratching their heads a little bit. Wait a minute. What kind of parade is this? He's on a donkey. I mean, like Mary rode a donkey. I mean like donkeys were for like work. Donkey was a sign of a was a sign of peace. Martin Luther said this, thereby he shows that he does not come to terrify people or to drive or oppress them, but to help them. That's what a true king does, to carry their burdens, to take them on himself. And this is why Paul calls the gospel a scandal. And he calls it foolishness. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 22 through 24. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block for the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man. And the weakness of God is stronger than man, And the true king exemplifies this in the way that he enters the city, Jerusalem. We have to ask ourselves this question as we conclude. Is the Jesus we know the Messiah or our Messiah? You see, Dostoevsky in his classic novel, The Brothers Karamazov, wrote in the section, The Grand Inquisitor, Jesus comes back to town in this work and they arrest him. The church, that is. The church officials put Jesus in jail because they had created in their own minds their idea of a Savior and a Messiah. They have not submitted to the Savior and the Messiah. Who is Jesus to you? Is he the Messiah? Or is he just your Messiah? Is he the true king? Is he the suffering servant? Is he the promised one? The scriptures say that he is, and Matthew 21's narrative proclaims this. One interesting thing to close with, with regard to the idea of Christ entering. Um, It tells us in the text that the city was stirred up. Um, Some would say a more literal translation was the city quaked. The city quaked about 30 years earlier as well when Jesus was born. The city quaked again when Jesus was put to death and resurrected. And then the scriptures also teach that the city, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, will quake again. Why? Because this Messiah, who's the promised one, who's the suffering servant, who's the true king, is coming back. But when he comes again, he will come differently. He will have a different mode of transportation when he comes again fully and finally in the name of consummation. John says it like this in Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. with a rod of iron. He will tread on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name that is written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we